and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. God does not promise us a life without pain or suffering or injustice. What he is instead is a God of mercy and comfort so that we can endure. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this sermon entitled The Father of Mercies and the God of All Comfort, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 to 7. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 3. And uh, in full disclosure, uh, when I planned on teaching this text, I originally thought I'd be covering uh, just a few more verses that I'm going to actually hit today. And in fact, the verses I planned on preaching this morning, uh, as of probably 30 minutes ago, um, I'm going to preach even fewer than I initially planned to do. Uh, and the reason for that is twofold. One, I just don't think we have time to mine the depths of what God has in this text. But two, there are some essential things that I want us as God's people just to sit on. Because this is a text. This is a text that forces us to face that most foundational of questions. Who is God? And what is he like? But not only that, this is a text that in a moment when we may be feeling the brokenness of this world more acutely than we ever have before, this is a text that drives us to the only one who offers true comfort. And that's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read this text together, starting in verse 3, and then I'll pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you needy. Lord, I just, I confess on my own behalf, I feel overwhelmed by this moment. I don't have the tools or the gifts to rise to this kind of an occasion, and yet, Lord, I pray through your Spirit, would you speak? Would you make yourself known? Would you press the truth, the hope, the comfort of the gospel into hearts that are in desperate need of it? Father, would you come? Jesus, would you come? Spirit, would you come? In Jesus' name, amen. If you're familiar with kids at all, uh, you know that kids go through phases. Uh, These phases that sometimes make you scratch your head and go, "I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Well, one of my daughters is in a phase like that. And it goes something like this. In the middle of the night, she'll just start screaming. 
No apparent provocation, just screams for no reason in particular. And those screams, they sound like this, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy. And she will get out of her bed and she will run to the door and she'll just start pounding on it. So that finally, because we don't want her to wake up her sisters, her mom and I, one of us, will get out of bed and go plodding down the hall. Well, here's the pattern that's begun to present itself. If I'm the one who plods down the hall, this is what I can expect to unfold. I'll come to the door. I'll gently turn the handle and push the door open because she's pressed against it and I don't want to knock her over. And I'll get down on my knees and I'll open my arms and I'll say to my little girl, come here, I'm here, it's okay. And my daughter will lift her tear-stained face from the carpet and she will look at my face and she will see my arms and then she'll scream even louder than before, not you, mommy. And it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter if I take her into my arms. It doesn't matter if I sing to her. It doesn't matter if I pray over her. It doesn't matter if I rub her back and do everything I can to make her feel safe and comforted. My daughter in that moment, she wants someone else. And while she is screaming for comfort, and comfort is holding her in its arms, she wants comfort from another source, and she wants it in another way. And so she flails, and she kicks, and she screams against it. That's the church in Corinth. God has taken these people from every walk of life, and he has brought them into his embrace through Jesus. He's called them his own. He has shown them his love. But this church, as 1 and 2 Corinthians make painfully clear, this church has started to drift. And while God has taken them into his embrace, they've begun to have their ears tickled by teachers who are proclaiming to them a gospel other than that of Jesus Christ. And all the while, the siren song of their culture is humming louder and louder in the background so that for this people, even though the Father holds them in his hands, even though he's claimed them in Christ, just like my daughter, instead of falling into his arms, they're flailing against them because they want comfort from another source and they want it in another way. Paul Paul in our text this morning with the tender care of a pastor who loves the sheep. He turns their faces so that they would see the beauty of the one who has embraced them in Christ again. So that they would flail no more, but instead fall into his embrace and follow him wherever he would lead. God wants the same for us this morning. Because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself says in John 20, that is the one that if we are in Christ, he's now our God and our Father too. And here's the one who has taken us into his arms. First, he's the Father of mercies. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of of mercies. Paul, with those very first words, he strikes right at the heart of the ways that we tend to misconceive God. These ways that we imagine God to be like. 
He's speaking to people just like you and me, people who just like Adam and Eve, we think that because of our sin, that if God was gonna come near, if his footsteps were to sound down the hall coming towards our door, that the only reason that he would come near would be to destroy us. It wouldn't be to care for us, it wouldn't be to provide for us, but instead it would be for our harm because of the things that we've done. We think of God and we tend to think that if God was like a mousetrap, he's one where the slightest misstep, the slightest miscalculation, the slightest move beyond these certain parameters, if we do that thing, then he will snap down on us with anger and fury unlike anything we have ever known. Paul, Paul says, if that's who you think God is, then you don't know the God of the Bible. He's not the father of wrath. He's not the father of anger. He's the father of mercies. And this is a, a truth that God has been driving home into my heart these past few weeks through a little book that I would highly commend to you called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And Dane, when he speaks of this exact text, he says, the mercies that are spoken of here, these are mercies all through the New Testament that are synonymous with God's compassion. God, the one that Paul speaks of, he is one, as Ortland puts it, who multiplies compassionate mercies to his needful, wayward, messy, following, wondering people. Mercy, mercy isn't something that has to be forced out of the heart of God. Mercy is something that flows freely and powerfully from his very nature. Think just for a second about the way that God reveals himself in the Bible. In Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses. He is passing by Moses hidden in the rock. And how does God reveal himself? Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Not angry, not wrathful, not vindictive, not bitter, but a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God says, if you want to know me, if you want to know what I'm like, here is the thing that is closest to the heart of my identity. It's not anger, it's mercy. Anger is not something that comes quickly from me. Anger is slow. Anger is something that has to be provoked, as you see all through the Bible, when egregious sins have been committed again and again and again across generation after generation. Anger is something that only comes when it is absolutely necessary, but mercy, mercy is something that threatens to break forth at the slightest prick because mercy sits at the heart of who God is. If God's like a mousetrap, what God would say to you in Exodus 34 is that the thing that's in danger of snapping down on you with the slightest provocation, it's not my anger, it's mercy. Think about how God continues to show himself to his people. In Hosea 11, God's people are, are compared to a wife that has abandoned her husband, committed adultery over and over and over again. They have committed sins that are so great that God has every right to say, I'm divorcing you, I'm done with you, I will destroy you. They deserve nothing but wrath. And then in Hosea 11, God says this. Inexplicably, 
He says this, I will discipline you like a father, but I will not destroy you. I cannot destroy you. Why? Verse 8, because my heart, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God's heart, it grows sick at the thought of having to destroy his people. In Jonah, that book where the prophet is famously swallowed by a whale because he decides he doesn't want to go to the people of Nineveh like God has asked him to. In that book, why is it that Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh? It's not because he's afraid of the Ninevites. It never says that. But Jonah, Jonah gives you the reason in chapter 4, verse 2. It's because he knows his God. And what he's afraid of, it's not that God's anger will snap down on the Ninevites. It's that that mercy that needs but the slightest nudge to break out is that that mercy will break out for them. And that is exactly what happens. And that's a mercy. It's a mercy we see in Jesus, isn't it? Because who's Jesus? Jesus isn't some blip on the radar. Jesus isn't some change to the way that God interacts with the world. Jesus is the living, breathing embodiment of the Father's heart of mercy, walking around on two legs and speaking face to face with us. As Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing the living, breathing, three-dimensional heart of the Father for you. And what do you see? You see one whose heart is described more than any other emotion in the Bible, is described as being moved with compassion for his people, whose heart breaks out for those in need. What you see in Jesus it's one who does get angry, who turns over tables and rages outside of the tomb of Lazarus, but in every occasion where he gets angry, notice where it springs from. It's not something separate from his compassion. It's something that actually arises from his compassion. It's the heart of mercy that we see nowhere more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ because it is a mercy that runs so deep that God the Father would send God the Son to suffer and to die in our place so that in our place of deepest need, we would be met. That's the Father of mercies. Paul, Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, he's saying to you and to me, why in the world would you ever flail against a God like this? Why would you resist him? Why would you ever doubt his goodness when he has done nothing but show you a heart unlike any you've ever experienced? This, it was what most naturally flows from him. And if mercy is the thing that most naturally flows from the heart of our God, what would you expect should be the most natural thing to flow from the heart of his people? If not, mercy. As Jesus says in Luke 6, 
be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Paul says, flail no more, but fall into the arms of the Father of mercy. But he goes on. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's not just the Father of mercies who shows us that mercy in Christ. He's the God of all comforts who comforts us in Christ. Look at verse 4. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, every single one, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, no matter what it is, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As the rest of 2 Corinthians shows, Paul is saying, whatever affliction you are under, if you are in Christ, there is comfort, and not just a little bit of comfort, but abundant, overflowing, infinite comfort for you. It's comfort that's internal and external. It's comfort for the one whose heart aches within him because the people, just like Paul, that he loves, do not love him in return. It's comfort for the one who has sinned and finds himself in need of restoration and yearns to be made whole. It is comfort for the one, just as Paul tells you there is comfort for him here in Corinthians, who has sinned and needs to be restored. It's comfort for the one who is being persecuted because of their service to the king, who even as him is whipped and stoned and imprisoned and persecuted. Paul says there is comfort here that overwhelms every single one of our afflictions. And I don't want us to miss this because this is key. It is comfort for us, for you and for me. He says in verse 4, did you notice it? Who comforts, not me, but us in all of our affliction. That us doesn't refer just to Paul and Timothy. And you know that for this reason. It refers to every single believer in Jesus Christ because Paul, he roots this comfort not in Paul being an apostle or Timothy being a pastor. He roots it in something that is true of every single believer in Jesus Christ. It is their union with Jesus. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, as those united to him, we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, if we're going to understand the comfort that Paul is speaking of here, there's a misconception that we have to do away with. Uh, comfort in Christ uh, doesn't mean that your life is suddenly going to go easily. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to float along in numb apathy while you glut on Netflix night after night. It doesn't mean your best life now. It doesn't mean an entrance into this place of serenity and bliss where everything goes exactly as you would like it. No, what Paul says, this is comfort. Comfort that doesn't let you avoid affliction. This is comfort that meets you in the midst of affliction because to suffer, it is not something that is an aberration in the Christian life. It is a part of what it means to be united to Jesus. Because think on this for a moment because this is important. How can you be joined to the crucified Savior if you do not share in his cross? How can you share in his resurrection life if you do not first taste of his crucified death? How can you be joined to the suffering servant if you do not suffer and serve with him? 
If your boat is tethered to Jesus, he's not going to leave you comfortably floating along with the current. Where is Jesus going to take you? Not along with the crowd, but he is going to take each and every one of us and he is going to pull us upstream with him. Which means that if our hearts are tethered with his and we are being moved in the direction that he would carry us with him as the leader, that same world that is hostile to God and polluted with sin, that same world is going to fall on us. Which means that suffering, suffering is going to come. And that suffering, it's more than just persecution. It's the suffering of people whose hearts are knit to Jesus, but who live in a world where they are still battling their own flesh and sin. It's the suffering of the person who has the opportunity to save their business from bankruptcy, but who realizes that to take that opportunity, while it might not be illegal, it would be dishonest. And it would harm people, even if they're people he would never see, it would harm them. And who knows, because his heart is knit to Jesus, that even if it costs him his business, there is only one thing he can do, and that is to ignore that opportunity and instead to lose everything, because he'd rather have Jesus than anything else. It's the one, the suffering of the one who sinned and knows they need to confess and repent, but is absolutely terrified of doing it because they are worried that the person they're going to confess to will show them nothing but anger and rage and vindictiveness, and they may actually be right. And though everything screams out against it, they know they can do nothing other than confess because their heart is knit to Jesus And it is foolishness to the world. But Paul says this, this is the wisdom of God for those who believe. Because suffering, suffering isn't the mark of the one who doesn't belong to God. It's the mark of the one who truly does. Because it reveals a heart knit to his. And here, here's where the comfort comes. As we share in his sufferings, Paul says we share even more abundantly in his comfort. Because if we are joined with him in his death, that means we are also joined with him in his resurrection life. It means that while we are more and more brought to the end of our own resources, we're discovering at every turn that we can never come to the end of his it's that we discover that while we have this treasure in jars of clay, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it is for this purpose, not to show our strength, but to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So that no matter what we face, we are afflicted, but we are never crushed. We are perplexed, but we never despair. We are persecuted, but we are never forsaken. We are struck down, but we are never destroyed. For this reason, we are tethered to him. And where he is, so one day we will also be. The God of all comfort, he may not take away your cancer. He may not refill your retirement account. And in this moment, 
where our hearts are crying out for justice. Where I know for many of my minority brothers and sisters right now, you feel as though you are about to break with him. In this moment where the pain feels so deep and the hope feels so small, he may not bring justice right now. We should fight for it with every fiber of our being, but it may not come in this life, but here is where we find our comfort. If we are united to him, then while that deliverance may not come now, there is coming a day when it will come in full. Because where he is, so one day, so also will we be. And on the day he returns, he will take every broken thing and he will make it new. So that as Paul says at the end of chapter 4, those things that made us despair, those things that made us feel as though we could not take another step, they will look to us like light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in Christ on that day. That's our comfort. It's not comfort that removes affliction. It is comfort that enables us to endure in affliction. And it is comfort that promises us that while we may not be delivered now, there will come a day when we will be delivered in full. And that is the comfort we find in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have time to do the last point of this sermon, so I'm just going to close with this. A few weeks ago, my wife and I watched a film called A Hidden Life uh, that has not left me since we watched it. It's one of the best films I think I've seen in years, and it is most assuredly the most profound meditation on what it looks like to pick up your cross and follow Jesus that I've ever seen on screen. It's the true story of a man named Franz Jagerstadter, a man whose life is everything that the title suggests. His life is a hidden one. He's just a simple Austrian farmer who has a wife that he adores and three little girls that he treasures, a man who has a profound faith in Jesus, but he's a man who finds his life ripped apart because his idyllic little world gets shattered by the rise of a man named Adolf Hitler. And as he watches his countrymen get swept away by the promises of this man, Franz Jagerstadter is a man whose heart is knit to Jesus. He realized that he could not go along with it. That when they came and told him he needed to serve in the army, that that was something he could not do because that would mean swearing allegiance to Hitler, a man that he saw as the personification of everything that was anti-Christ and anti-gospel. And he knew that that was a decision that would probably cost him his life. The movie is a meditation on what it looks like to slowly realize that that cross that you picked up, it is actually much deeper and darker than you realized. Because what Franz begins to realize is that it's not just his freedom that's gonna be taken. It's not just his life that's gonna be destroyed. It's gonna be the, wife of the, the life of the woman that he loves and of the children that he adores. Because he's not only gonna leave his wife without a husband, He's not only going to leave his kids without a father, but he is going to leave them in a village and in a country that despises them for the stand that he has taken. 
and he wrestles and he fights and he tries to think of anything else that he could do, but as his heart, it will not let him go elsewhere because his affections have been captured by Jesus. Until finally, in the last moments of the movie, in a moment when, in a moment when the Nazi the Nazi men who were in control, they send his wife in to try to change his mind one last time, to play on his emotions and to get him to make some other decision. His wife comes into the room and she does something unexpected. She takes his hands in hers and she looks her husband in the eyes and she says these simple but profound words, I love you. Whatever you do, whatever comes, I will be with you always. Do what is right. I haven't been able to shake that scene. Because what has continued to hammer home in my heart is those words, those aren't just Franz Jagerstatter's wife's words, are they? Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. It's the words of the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort speaking through Franz Jagerstatter's wife as a conduit of his comfort so that a man who is in his deepest place of need would realize that he has not been forsaken or abandoned. And Franz, Franz knew it. Because when he leaves that room, knowing that what waits him is a guillotine, Knowing what waits him is the end of his life. He goes as a man who's afflicted but isn't crushed. Who is persecuted but not forsaken. Who is struck down but not destroyed because he knows this. His life may have been hidden from the world, but it wasn't hid from the God and Father of his Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort held him in his hands. And he was the God who raises the dead and he would fall. He would not flail, but he would fall into his embrace, no matter what the cost. May we do the same. And may we say with Paul, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for you. Lord, as we stand here and hear your word this morning, we're reminded of just how deeply we rely on you. And yet again, how profoundly you meet us in every place of our need. Would you take our hearts and would you knit them ever more tightly to your own through Jesus Christ and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more.
Listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.